This is the second part of a discussion I had with Brian Klinsick on October 10th, 2022 about global property investing and how we will all be impacted by the post-acute COVID environment. You are listening to the AFIRE podcast. Real estate, technology, cross-border investing, and the opportunities of a changing world. Let's start a conversation now. I wonder if we, from a, since the real estate industry is very much an international real estate industry where capital is flowing from country to country across borders and the standards of, of energy uh, and of ESG in Europe are well ahead of what they are in the US, do you see that impacting the amount of investing that might take place in the US over the next couple of years? Uh, it's, there are certainly um, a whole host of political factors in how ESG, uh, and I have to say, we don't really love the term ESG anymore. We think it bundles together too many disparate strands that need to be really addressed by, you know, in separate work stream with teams with different skills. And we're really separating out, you know, the decarbonizing real estate from evaluating physical climate risk, which is a different thing versus what we do for communities versus, you know, governance and, and, diversity and inclusion on those things that sometimes fall under the G. So I, I guess maybe I'll say ESG one last time out of a kind of ease, but say, you know, I'd like to really make sure we separate that out. The polit- the political, and, and, and again, I, I shouldn't go too deep into this because it's a bit of a political minefield, but the debate right now about, again, here's that term, ESG in investment decisions, super hot topic. Different U.S. states are going in different directions. Different European countries are going at different paces, but all in the same direction. Um, there are definitely discussions in Europe about what you know where they want to invest in North America uh, based on the, the 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 direction that places are going in terms of decarbonizing. Um, looking at the energy intensity of grids, because that will matter very much to the cost of getting to net zero. But um, it's certainly the case that uh, some some places are not really in the U.S. are not that's not really on their agenda right now, and may or may not actually have an impact in terms of regulations uh, on buildings uh, and expectations of tenants. So um, it, it there, there's an element of politics and an element of principle that will come into play. Uh, among Europe, amongst European investors, who and, and how they think about investing in, in the U.S. A lot of our investors are have been for a long time have been asking about where's the distress and looking for trades to start occurring at a at a lower valuation. Um, and there seems to be more optimism in this era of pessimism that there will be more distressed uh, asset sales that there'll be more movement. Um, what are you seeing in that, and and what do you think investors should be looking for if they're they're looking to to perhaps pick something up uh, at a discount? We don't see a lot of bargains anywhere right now. Um, there isn't the same kind of balance sheet pressure that perhaps was in place at the beginning of the GFC. Um, sellers are generally not pressured to be selling, and where they have expectations that are 
unrealistic um, based on where the cost of debt is today. We're, you know, anchoring into a prior um, a, a, a prior valuation. They're just not selling. I, I really kind of break down pricing into the math of spiking rates and that and the mechanical repricing it's driving and, and the path of fundamentals. So the math and the path. Um, what we're seeing in the math is that sectors that were absolute low yielding are repricing the most. It's it's just like simple maths of an X basis point increase in yields or, or cost of debt um, has a disproportionate, you know, capital value impact from that same kind of adjustment applied to a higher yielding sector. And that has some counterintuitive outcomes for where the biggest repricing is being seen because it's happening in the sectors who have that have manifestly strong fundamentals. So we're talking about logistics, we're talking about um, certain kinds of you know residential, but the path of fundamentals will ultimately determine uh, where values settle. Uh, the 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 key you know insight into real estate and inflationary environment is that uh, inflation isn't. Uh, only a, isn't an ex, exclusively a bad thing for real estate. It can be a good thing for real estate cash flows if landlords have pricing power. And so, you know, we look at the variation in landlord pricing power across market supply demand balance. Um, you know, we see that logistics uh, in the U.S. and globally, uh, landlords have tremendous pricing power and continue to, even with uh, perhaps some uh, uh, some you know, uh, front page of the newspaper, logistics tenants pulling back a little bit. I'm talking about Amazon here. Um, residential, uh, uh, you know, suburban residential and good school districts. Even urban residential, at least from a very depressed trend, as people have come back to cities. I mean, people said that co that working from home would cause people to be able to uh, work anywhere and live anywhere. It turns out they are fine to to work anywhere. But they want to live somewhere. They want to live in a place where they have amenities, where they have good schools, good quality of life, and things to do that are exciting and fun. I mean, the, there's a huge gap between the number of people uh, dining in restaurants in big cities versus those going to the, their desk. And, and I think it's interesting. I mean, we keep seeing numbers around uh, transit and how uh, we're at or above COVID levels for transit on the weekends into the cities, but we're still well below uh, where it was uh, before COVID on the weekdays. It's like, we, we want to be in the cities to play. We don't want to be in the cities to work. Ed Glazier spoke about that at a recent meeting of ours in terms of our cities becoming more consumer-focused cities than they are workplace-focused cities. I mean, do you see that same trend playing out? Yeah, absolutely. And um, it has feedback loops to the office market as well. Um, just to use a um, kind of a London uh, case study here. Uh, London's three key office submarkets, as I'm sure you know, are the West End, the city, and Canary Wharf. And Canary Wharf looks very much like a North American downtown, big towers, um, a lot of sandwich, sh sandwich shops, um, not a lot of life on the street uh, after, after hours. Um, except for maybe that, you know, stray investment banking analyst who needs a late night snack to get their model done. 
opposite end of the spectrum is the west end of London, where you literally spill out, can spill out of your office on into pubs, into restaurants, nightclubs, you know, experiential flagship retail settings, uh, theater culture, uh, etc. You know, unique environments architecturally and experientially, and um, what we've seen is that there's been a much more robust return to the office in the West End than uh, Canary Wharf. And just to complete that narrative, the city is positioned in between the two on all of those dimensions as well as on a map. And so I think that you know cities are becoming a much more of a live, work, play kind of um, portfolio of, of offerings and experiences. And that the, 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 the office that gets people convinces people that it's worth it to come in uh, and and go to the city and suffer the commute are the places that offer the ability to kill two birds with one stone and have uh, those experiences or social opportunities at the same time they go to the office. So the monoculture of high-rise offices and sandwich shops, those kinds of places are globally, wherever they're most at risk, globally, wherever they occur, are where offices are most at risk. Asia is, you know, its cities have almost always been live, work, play kinds of super uh, high density, layered, complex mix of uses. And that's one of the reasons why we see um, you know, very little having changed in many Asia-Pac cities in terms of people coming to the office, people going into city centers. That's interesting because it's a more nuanced kind of view on this than the usual discussion, which is office is good, office is dead. You know, there, there tends to be a binary discussion that's going on right now in terms of where the future of office is. And I like the way you're thinking about it, where life um, matters. Um, and this idea of a monoculture, which was really kind of what fueled U.S. urban growth over the last, say, 70 years, we seem to be entering a twilight of that mode of thought or a twilight of that that being a valid um, and valuable way to situate our office. Would that, would that be an accurate reflection on that? The office is, has to fit into life. And um, life is a whole range of different activities. And where we, where we expect office to be most successful is where it can, it can fit into that. Um, but the US is really in the worst situation globally as it relates to the office. Um, it has more of these CBD locations at our towers and sandwich shops and little else. Um, it ha in those places, I've also suffered some outflows of people to kind of more spread out lower tax states, just this general sunbelt subtrend of migration that um, we've seen in place for a number of years. And so we have a nuanced view on office with a lot of the implications for our investment activity being variable by part of the world, being variable regionally, that does not make us very optimistic about the near-term prospects for office values in the U.S. Um, we still generally struggle to make sense of it. You know, the typical valuer, um, uh, the typical valuer practice of seeing vacancy as something that gets leased up to a stabilized level and, you know, ascribing some value to that lease up. If you were to aggregate that across the whole U.S. office market, would it imply a return to 
essentially a return to pre-COVID normalcy, which is just not going not going to happen. Um, you know, it's our view that the amount, the balance between in-person and virtual interaction has pretty much been reached. We the gra- trend of gradual uh, workplace mobility being interrupted by occasional, you know, um, new variants that, but there was this generally upward trend, uh, that has leveled off, you know, in pretty much globally. Um, and what we haven't reached is a stabilized environment of occupiers figuring out that, what, what that means for how they're going to configure their space, how much they need, how it'll be designed, how it'll be used. And, um, but that there's, um, uh, so there's uncertainty there, but I would say for U.S. offices, probably not a ton of upside at the moment. I, I know people are impatient to know what that that future office looks like. I mean, that seems to be the, the main topic of conversation. And yet it seems like we have to still wait to understand exactly what that's going to look like, especially given that we're still not at half in many markets, we're still not at half of the occupants that we had before. Uh, in terms of the offices. So we don't know yet how that's going to impact leasing, how that's going to impact what the tenants are going to be looking for on a go-forward basis or where they're looking for it. So it's a, this is a tricky time, uh, I think, as an office investor. It certainly is reflecting itself in the institutional investors that respond to our sentiment surveys, um, where over the last few years, it only accelerated in this time of COVID. Um, but there has been a de-emphasizing of traditional CBD office and uh, very much an emphasis on multifamily. Um, and on uh, logistics as being the opportunities for the institutional uh, cross-border investor. Do you think that trend's going to, uh, it it sounds like you're saying it's going to be some time before that trend reverses itself. Gunnar, I mean, I I think your organization is very focused on foreign investors coming into the U.S. Uh, Is that right? Yes. So the, 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 the other side of that coin is, you know, U.S. investors going outside of the U.S. And there's some interesting patterns that you see there. Um, I I think that at certain episodes and periods of time, you've seen um, different kinds of foreign investors being very, very keen on, especially trophy North American um, uh, office buildings. The Japanese at at various, you know, famous moments in time. Uh, German investors. uh, And to some extent... I would say that is rooted in uh, perceptions and realities of in those countries of what is an investable, attractive institutional asset. And um, part of so we so this is kind of a home bias in per- perceiving trends and applying them to the rest of the world that may or may not be be the right way to think about it. Um, you know, it's not surprising that. Some North American rooted players have been some of the most dominant instigators or originators of non-traditional niche sectors in Europe and and Asia. Things like self-storage, um, student housing. If you you know you go back a bit, uh, even just institutionally managed residential. So they're you know they were seeing an opportunity to build sectors that had become quite mature. And institutional and attractive in a North American context, from, essentially from zero in other parts of the world. Um, the the kind of diversification of the opportunity set by sector 
in other parts of the world has helped investors coming into the U.S. to see a broader range of um, opportunities and to see that you know these local players who've been investing in medical office for a very long time weren't um, they weren't uh, they weren't nuts to be doing that. Investors who were looking at Austin, Texas, and Nashville, which are some of the top performing you know markets in terms of in migration of firms and of individuals and have been pretty uh, um, generally pretty good markets to invest in real estate in um, they were not off base for going beyond some of the traditional gateway markets which were the first places that uh, foreign investors in u.s real estate would 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 land on but i would maybe you know also turn it around and that this negativity or this pessimism i should say about offices that exist in the U.S. that is deserved and that we generally agree with, there's risks of applying that to other parts of the world, like Japan, um, like uh, continental Europe, where the return to the office has been more robust. I think the configuration of offices in, in Europe has has looked a little bit more like the where the U.S. is heading for some time, hot desking, collaboration areas, etc. And so, we don't have to be impatient for the future of the office in Europe. Uh, we might, you know, get questions from the U.S. investors saying, "How could you, you know, how could you do office?" But it's a different, it's a different, it's a different world here. I think the thing we are impatient about is just an environment where inflation stabilizes and swap rates stabilize, and we can start to have pricing cease to be this moving target, and we can start to kind of, you know, put a value on all this real estate. Here, here. Well, as you look at this, as you look at this uncertain environment, you, you're you're working in a, an environment of a, a global investment firm. What are you focused on? What are those key drivers that you know are at the top of mind for you and your colleagues as you're trying to make sense of the next several months uh, or several years in commercial real estate? Sure, I, I put those into kind of four uh, four buckets. Um, what are the big topics for um, global research at LaSalle? Uh, the first one is the energy transition and climate change, uh, physical and, and transition risk. We talked already about that. Um, future of cities and in-person interaction, operational real estate, you know, real estate as a service. What does that mean for markets? How do you price operational real estate? How do you risk adjust operational real estate? The next one is uh, data, big data, alternative signals, kind of data from our own portfolios, data from sources that weren't the typical real estate data sources of, you know, uh, supply, demand, vacancy, uh, and rents, um, trying to find trends that aren't the obvious trends that, the, that, that real estate um, analysts have always been following. And then I think the fourth one is 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 a lot of the the macro breaks. It's the stuff we've been talking about. The end of the low, low, low environment, low low inflation, low interest rates, low growth. What does that what does that mean? The the the, the deglobalization, geopolitical side of things. Um, so it's a kind of we used to use the word disruption to talk about technology. That's still a big big uh, kind of disruption. But I think we have a disruption to the way the world works, which we're still sorting through. But 
the global overlay, you know, for us is also to across all of those four themes uh, about finding patterns, pattern recognition across different parts of the world. I mean, we have really strong regional research teams um, that know the details of what's happening in markets and submarkets and across the sectors and can really dig in. And the but we also benefit globally from putting all of that together and finding uh, threads that we can apply to other markets. So is the last decade of extremely intense logistics rental growth in North America replicable in Europe? To date, it really hasn't been, but it's starting to come through now. And our experience in North America caused us to see that. Same, you know, we had a similar view on Canada where um, the, the, the spike in, in, in rents in uh, Toronto industrial, which is very much real over the last couple of years, was a trend that lagged um, North America. So there's a kind of structural pattern recognition, but also cyclical recognition that there are leads and lags that operate globally. Um, right now, the, 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 the market that's leading the world downward in terms of economic performance is Europe. And there's just big questions as to how much that will translate into other parts of the world, because some of these challenges are Europe specific. But those are, you know, uh, I think a high level overview of how how we're thinking about what are our priorities as a global research team. Well, um, I'm I'm so glad that even though the the crystal ball that you referenced before is very difficult to look through, that at the very least you're giving us some view past the cloudiness and some sense of at least what to look at. Um, so I want to thank you, Brian, for spending this time with us and to kind of help us kind of see what the what are the things that we want to focus on and how do we have a more nuanced understanding of the real estate markets. I think it's it's very dangerous to uh, invest based on kind of the headlines of you know the, the binary discussion of what's on, what's off. Um, it's it's uh, it's far more complicated and far more interesting than that. Um, I look forward to having more conversations uh, with you in the future, Brian. I, uh, we've been listening to Brian. Klinsick, who is the uh, incoming uh, global head of research and strategy for LaSalle uh, Investment Management. Thank you so much, Brian, for joining me on the AFIRE podcast. Gunnar, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to the AFIRE podcast. Remember to subscribe on your favorite podcast subscription service, such as Apple, Spotify, Google, Stitchers, and others. AFIRE is not engaged in providing tax, accounting, or legal advice. No content in this podcast is to be construed as a recommendation to buy or sell any asset. Some information included has been obtained from third-party sources considered to be reliable, though AFIRE is not responsible for guaranteeing the accuracy of third-party information. The opinions expressed are those of its respective contributors and sources and do not necessarily reflect those of AFIRE.